Hey, welcome to the Happy Ramp Podcast. I am Ted Clark, joined, as always, in studio by my good friend in radio, Barnabas Piper, Sans Ron Martin. Uh, our boy Ronnie is doing pastor stuff. Is that the impression you got, Pipe? It was like high-level pastor business today. It must have been high-level because he used the phrase conference call. Yeah. Dude, conference call is huge. I always feel like such a such a baller, such a boss when I can say I'm on a conference call. You know what I mean? Yeah, except that those of us in the biz are like, oh, you poor soul. You just you got suckered into something where people are talking over each other and saying dumb stuff and Oh dude, to, yeah, they're always a mess. They always they always yeah. suck horribly. The tech never quite works right. <laughs> Sounds a lot like this podcast, actually. Actually it does, man. This is like a <laughs> weekly conference call. You know what I mean? This is uh oh, it's good. Now now I feel so deflated. Uh, don't feel deflated, baby. Was it was it last week that we were so down and we were so glum on the show? When was that? Uh, I think Ronnie was really glum. With the, I think it was last week. Might have been. Dude, two Ronnie weeks ago. was super down last week. Yeah, he was just. Do you think we should be worried that he was down last week and then he claimed conference call this week? Dude, I am a little worried. I wouldn't be surprised if we if we got a resignation a soon. Bar. Yeah, yeah. He needs a watch McCullough bar. He needs a little. You know what he needs, man. Ron is a creature of uh, of love from other people. So if we can, if we can get the audience to throw him a little love on Twitter, he will be he will be back um, and ready to go next week. So. And I know I'm I'm totally comfortable if people tweet at Ronnie and say, "Hey, the show is so much better when you're on with those other two guys." Uh, it doesn't hurt my feelings at all. So by all yeah. means, puff him. Yeah, if up. they were to tweet the opposite, he would get even more glum and he would quit immediately. <laughs> so we don't want that. No, uh, that, would be, I, that would be. You know what makes me not glum? Every time, man. This is this is an every time like mood elevating thing for me is going to see minor league baseball. Are you with me on that? 100%. 100%. Yeah, minor league baseball to me is just the purest, funnest, like low-key form of entertainment. And our sponsor for this week, uh, which I'm super stoked about, is a minor league baseball team. It's the Jackson Generals uh, right here in my own backyard of Jackson, Tennessee, they are a double A affiliate of the Arizona Diamondbacks, which I have to be honest and say that I could not probably name one player on the Arizona Diamondbacks at this point, Pipe. Um, could you? They're a sneaky good. I could name a couple, but yeah, they've sort of overhauled their roster recently. I mean, I'm like they Zach Greinke is on that team, and he's oh, good. there you go, there you go. That's um, a name I've heard of. Yeah, there's a guy. There's a guy named Robbie Ray who's a pitcher for them, who's one of the best strikeout pitchers in the league, who nobody's ever heard of. Dude, I feel like uh, Robbie is a great baseball name. It is. Yeah, it's like if he was Rob Ray, it's like he's your homeroom teacher in seventh grade. Dude, but, so uh, right, man. So, so right. But yeah. Robbie Ray sounds like a baseball player. Dude, Rob Ray, you know who Rob Ray is? He's a middle manager at like a Christian publishing house. You know what I mean? He's, he's, <laughs> I think I might work with Rob Ray. Yeah, you might, man. Rob Ray is the so you get two marketing guys on your book. Rob Ray is the guy without the good ideas, and whoever the other guy is is the one with the good ideas. It's, it's, there's, yeah, Rob it's Ray is true. the guy that says, "You know what? Let's do a let's do a bookmark with your image on it." That's yeah, we'll a, send you a thousand, and you can use it at all of your speaking events. Yeah, that's a Rob want, Ray idea. Want bookmarks? Whereas Robbie Ray, man, Robbie Ray's got the mullet. He wears the stirrups. You know, Robbie Ray is a that's a that's a good baseball name right there. But we're getting we're getting off track uh, pipe. We're talking about uh, we're talking about the generals. We're talking about the Jackson Generals uh, right here in my backyard of Jackson, Tennessee. And what a good time this is for the family at the ballpark. So uh, the great thing about minor league ball and you have kids, so you know this. 
Uh, it gets very expensive to take the kids to a big league game, uh, but it's super affordable. Uh, I always get the upper deck box seats at the General Stadium, and I feel like such a high roller up there. It's a great seat, <laughs> great vantage point. There's a there's a little lounge up there on the on the top deck. Uh, I just feel like a boss in those seats, and uh, it's it's a really fun night at the ballpark. So, uh, great view. We get a little view of I forty in Jackson, which I kind of dig. Uh, kind of reminds you of where you are, and uh, and the Generals are a great team and a super fun team to watch. Uh, the stadium promotions are top notch. Uh, everything that they do at the Jackson Generals is top notch. So, uh, Pipe, where can you find this team online? The uh, the Generals. Yeah. Oh, let me see. I'm assuming it's JacksonGenerals.com, but um, there's a if you go to MLB.com, there's a whole minor league site, and you can find all the minor league teams, which means there's probably one in your backyard, listeners, and uh, that you didn't know anything about because they tend to be sort of unobtrusive little neighbor kind of neighborhood teams. Yeah. So, dude, it's almost it's, like a mom and pop business. Minor league baseball yeah. to me is a fascinating business model because. You have the affiliations with the big clubs, and really, minor league baseball exists just to develop the careers of like two guys on the roster. You know what I mean? There's always like yeah. a couple of guys that are that are movers, and everybody else is just kind of grist in the bill. But it's such a it's such a good time. It's such good entertainment. Um, and they're also they're also fascinating because they're all independently owned, and so they're affiliated yeah. with major leagues. But each team is responsible for being profitable on their own, and like the major league team doesn't doesn't really support them. So right, like, right. So here in Nashville, we have the Nashville Sounds, which is a AAA affiliate of the Oakland Athletics, which is random because yeah. they're on they're in the Pacific Coast League, and yet they're in Nashville. It's very strange, but <laughs> that's uh, great. But they're a really profitable team because they have a, a brand new downtown stadium in a neighborhood full of like restaurants and bars. It, it's right between downtown and Germantown, which is sort of this popping neighborhood. Yeah. And uh, it's a great it, – it's not super expensive, but they, they make it an environment that's great for kids but also great if you want to go sort of like do like a frat party kind of thing. There's sort of a section yep. for that. And then you go to some minor league parks and you're like, I played in nicer stadiums when I was 17. You know, exactly. this is this is a garbage stadium. It's a garbage field. I've been to a couple of those too, and it just it, it's a strange setup. But the, it's always fun, even in a garbage stadium, because it's just like that. Just feels nostalgic to me. Absolutely, dude. Do you remember that dope little garbage stadium that the Sounds used to play in in that neighborhood? Yeah. Yep. Yep. It was right, right over, across uh, the street from like United Record Pressing. You ever go in there? <laughs> No, I didn't. It's also it's also right by an old uh, Civil War era fort and a huge uh, huge cemetery. Dude, so. yeah, that was an incredible. And Grimey's Records was like right around the corner from there. So you talk about like great little under the radar spots to hit in Nashville. That was uh, that was a good spot for sure. Yeah. But um, I'm sure the downtown park is team too, or a great double A place. The the uh, Chattanooga Lookouts. So Tennessee oh, dude, yes. Tennessee is strong on minor league ball. Dude, we are very strong on minor league Memphis ball. Redbirds. Memphis Redbirds, that's right. Dude, I got to tell you, man, this is a little uh, a little insight into Big T. One of my dreams, man, one of my like long-term business dreams is to is to be a part owner of a minor league baseball team. Um, I would love it, man. That whole thing just appeals to me so much. And uh, I've actually looked into this. I've looked on some some like websites that broker the sale of these teams. It's not all that expensive. Um, so maybe a few years down the road, if we sell a little bit more Lagaris Roasters coffee, uh, if we sell a few more bags of the Happy Rant Signature Blend, we can uh, we can get ourselves involved in some some minor league baseball ownership pipe. 
That would be fantastic. And, uh, and, and Hector could get in on it as well. Absolutely. You know, Hector played college baseball. I didn't uh, know he, that. He played here at Union. So I could see Hector actually managing our team. Um, he could manage or he could be like a hitting coach, maybe, you know, what if he didn't want like, uh, I think he was an outfielder. Okay. Um, he's super athletic, man. So there, there's nothing that Heck Ligaris can't do. Heck Ligaris is like Superman. <laughs> I learned like, something impressive about him every episode. Dude, right. He's like, he's like Latin Superman. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I love that guy. So again, we are offering Happy Rant Signature Blend Coffee. If you haven't been to happyrantpodcast.com and, uh, and purchased a bag of Signature Blend, you, need, you owe it to yourself to do so. And uh, if you order right now, you can get a signed copy of The Pastor's Kid. Is that right? Uh, well, the stock might have run out uh, by okay. the time that this airs because there was only a few left because our listeners are awesome and jumped all over that deal. But my understanding was you provided some books. Dude, for, I did provide some books. So it may be which, some – Which books were those? It may be time for a little uh, a little signed copy of a Big T book, which is uh, my adoption memoir. It's called Hello, I Love You, Adventures in Adoptive Fatherhood. Um, it's one of the more uh, popular books that I've written. So it's a it's kind of a huge memoir seller. about the huge seller, man, huge, huge seller uh, about the adoptions of our two boys, Tristan and Maxim. So if you buy uh, some Happy Rant coffee, you'll either get Pipe's book or you'll get uh, a signed free copy of uh, Hello, I Love You. So, Pipe, we've got some uh, we've got some things to cover here. Sans Ronnie. And, um, you know, it was tough because in our production meeting, we had to. We had to kind of account for the fact that there were certain topics that Ron gets excited about, and there were certain topics that we knew he would have an opinion about, which is always kind of a tough thing to find. Um, so we kind of had to switch here midstream, but I heard through the grapevine uh, that you have a new tattoo. So I want you to tell us about that. I want you to tell us the story of your tat. It's probably been all over social media, but because I'm 93 years old, I haven't seen it. So uh, fire away, man. What are we, what are we looking at? So yeah, when I when I was 29, I got a forearm tattoo on my right forearm that I think we've talked about before, but it says "I believe help my unbelief" out of Mark yeah. nine. And like a year or two later, uh, I started thinking about do I want any other tattoos? I'm not I'm not an ink fanatic, you know. I'm not all yeah. tatted up, but yeah, uh, you know. And so I I only want to get something that I was like that that I would like that to be on me permanently. And so I just started thinking about would, that, would I like that? And I was just like, oh, I don't know, maybe if I run across something. And then at some point in there, I was reading reading through the Old Testament and ran across a verse in Hosea 8 that says, uh, and they will they that sow the wind will reap the whirlwind. Mm. And uh, or something, something very close to that. I think different versions. Some of them say sow the wind and reap and reap the whirlwind. But uh, it jumped out at me for two reasons. One, because I it strikes me sometimes that the Bible is very poetic. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm used to listening to lengthy sermons on the book of Romans and things like that, which don't, uh, don't scream poetic and don't catch right. the ear. But that right. phrase, I was like, that, <laughs> this is, this is such an insult to the Bible. It sounds like Shakespeare could have written it. Um, <laughs> but Dude, then the we other get thing... some, we're going to get some flack for that one, man. <laughs> oh, sorry, listeners, trigger warning. Um, yeah. Yep. But then the other thing was just the the significance of the phrase itself, which is just the it's it's a a more powerful pointed way of saying you reap what you sow. Uh, and mm. every lesson I have ever learned in my life of any significance has come through my mistakes 
or somebody else's mistakes. And so it just sort of was one of those ones that became sort of an earwig that just sort of like I couldn't I couldn't get rid of it. It just sort of rang in my head over time. And so after about three years, I finally decided, OK, that's the one I couldn't shake it. It it remained as true as ever. It's it's both a warning and an encouragement. Uh, yeah. So it's on my left forearm. So I've I've matching forearm tattoos. Well, they're not matching. They're different. They're different fonts, but matching yeah. locations. So yeah, Dude, sow the that. wind and reap the whirlwind. I love it, man. So where did you get the tattoo done? If you don't mind me asking, uh, it is a place called Custom Thrills in uh-huh. East Nashville. Okay. And did you know the tattoo artist? Did you have like a relationship with him? Or no, I went with a friend, and so he got he got one on his arm. That uh, but he and he had gotten a couple other tats done at this place, and it's okay. it's one of the more sort of critically acclaimed tattoo joints in Nashville. I think it started out as sort of a hole in the wall, and is now like you know they have seven or eight tattoo artists there. The guys won a bunch of awards, the guy who runs it. And, uh, they, they're all really, really good. Nice. And you pay, you pay for what you get. It's not a cheap place, but when you're getting something permanent done, dude, it's, right. worth it to, it's worth it to pay the extra money to get a good person to do it. Yeah. You really, really don't want to skimp on the tattoo. You yeah. know, there, are, there are places in life to be cheap, but that is not one of them. So pipe, I actually have uh, I have a fresh tattoo of my own, man. I don't know if you knew yeah, that. You have a story behind yours too. I do. So uh, earlier this summer, uh, my wife and I went to Israel for 10 days with Cliff Graham of Good Battle Tours. You can check out more about that trip at goodbattletours.com. Highly, highly recommend Cliff and his tour company. But uh, one of the things that we were able to do on the trip is visit supposedly the oldest tattoo shop in the world. So uh, the artist's name is Wasim Rizouk. And his shop, Rizouk Tattoos, has been in the old city of Jerusalem for like 700 years. And uh, it was one of those things, Pipe, that at the beginning of the trip, it started out being uh, a thing where people would be like, oh, that'd be awesome. We should go do that. We should totally do it. And kind of behind closed doors, I was like, yeah, I'll probably talk about it a whole bunch and then just not do it. And (laughs) and everybody was comfortable with that kind of being the dynamic of the group. But um, as the trip wound down, uh, we realized we were only really going to have like a three or four hour block of free time in the old city. And we had a uh, we had a guy on our trip, kind of a hipster dude from Nashville who had a lot of tattoos. And he was he he was kind of doing recon on the shop and looking it up and showing us stuff online about Razook. And the closer it got, the more excited about it we were. So somebody actually made an appointment, uh, blocked out several hours so that uh, a handful of us from the trip could go and get uh, and get inked up. And we did. And I have to tell you, man, this tattoo shop was unlike any tattoo shop I've ever seen stateside. Um, it was so classy. It looked like a little wine cave. You know what I mean? It had like the the little like exposed rock and the the ambient music and Razook had made coffee for everybody. It was incredible. And um, so I had my wife write out on a sheet of hotel paper uh, a little section of St. Patrick's Prayer. So uh, a few years ago, we were going through a rough time and she actually had written that out and taped it onto the steering wheel of my car. And... Um, you know, so I kind of read it every day, committed it to memory, and it was really special for me. And uh, I had her write that out, and uh, I had Razook tattoo that onto my shoulder. Uh, so it says, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left. And uh, it's on my shoulder now in my wife's handwriting, which uh, which is pretty cool. So um, so that was a good souvenir. I figure I could have bought a shofar in the roost. Yeah. But uh, instead, I got I got a, a Razook tattoo, so I'm pretty uh, pretty thrilled. Yeah, with that. So far, doesn't really fit in the carry on very well either. 
It really doesn't, man. Although I, I had a friend try to uh, try to force a shofar into the carry-on, which he insists was a great idea. But uh, <laughs> but I'm pretty break. pumped about <laughs> pretty pumped about the tattoo. So let me ask you this, pipe as as it pertains to tattoos. People say that it's addictive, and people say that once you've you've gotten one, you want to have more of them. Do you see yourself getting more tattoos? I think it depends on why you get it in the first place. I think it's only addicting if you're doing it as like body art. <clears throat> you yeah. know, so it's a because then then you look at yourself and you're like, oh, I'm a canvas and there's all this blank space. But if right. you're getting it for something, you know, the, the significance of the words or of the image or of the, you know, whatever it is. I don't know that it's quite as addicting. I also just don't have an addictive personality. So, I mean, I might someday, but I'm not itching to get another one. I'm not looking to, you know, design a whole sleeve for my left arm or something. Yeah. There's yeah. also something to be said for the fact that. You know, I don't see a point in getting too many tattoos that people can't see. And once like your forearms are done and like, you know, then you've got what, like your neck and face, unless you plan to go shirtless a lot. So, you know, call uh, me old fashioned. I'm not big on the neck or the face as a as a venue for the tattoo. You know, know, I I, I like to think of myself as open minded, but I feel like a face tattoo is still a thing that's going to make me go. Yeah, I I don't think we want you employed here. You know, if I was if I was making such decisions. I feel like a, taste, a face tattoo might be a deal breaker for, for Lifeway, for your current employer. <laughs> I, you know, and, and that's one of those ones that I probably wouldn't take issue with them on, you know. So yeah. sometimes yeah. I feel a little bit like Lifeway might be a little bit stodgy in some ways. You know, they are trying to please the Southern Baptist Convention in, you know, on, on all ends of the spectrum. But a face tattoo is one that I'm just going to be in wholehearted agreement that, yeah, I, I think that's not a, not a good life choice. Absolutely. And you know what? We love their stodginess. Lifeway is like the old kind of stodgy uncle that uh, he's he's a little bit buttoned down, but you love him anyway. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. yeah I mean, and and also it they're 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 the kind of it's the kind of stodgy that's like there's like angry fundamentalist. And then there's people who just sort of have always done it this way. And it's yeah. hard for them to break the habit. But also they're not jerks. Like they, that's true. Lifeway treats employees really well. So I'm I'm happy there. And I realize that Lifeway comes under heat by people because we, you know, occasionally decisions are made to pull books or because of our affiliation with so-and-so. And But it's a good place to work and they treat people well. It is. It is, man. Absolutely, it is. And uh, I find the whole pulling books thing entertaining. And in fact, I think there should be like... <laughs> That's because you don't work at Lifeway. <laughs> There, there should be a Vegas line on like what what author Lifeway is going to pull next. I feel like setting setting some kind of an over under or like there should be some action on that. You know what well, I mean? Just whichever one decides to be in favor of gay marriage is the answer to that question. <laughs> I love it. Man. So that's, love yeah, it. There, there, you could you could like parlay those bets into one because it's kind of the same thing. Dude, you could. Somebody needs to set this up. You know, I'm not, I'm not advocating gambling. This would be this would be all for entertainment purposes only, of course. But uh, if somebody wanted to set that up, that would be that would be fun. Pipe, I want to hit another topic here uh, that's kind of controversial. And this is one that even though I'm not on social media, I, I have to tell you something, man. So we have at our church and your your church probably has that churches all now have their own sort of in-house social media app. And, uh-huh. you know, it's always called like communion or the table or, you know, something churchy. But it's essentially a place for like outgoing people who want to share about their lives to do so in the form of kind of like a prayer request. But it's really just like an update. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 
So people yeah, are people. It, that's, exact, that's exactly what it is. Or to ask to borrow stuff. Like, hey, anybody have a hedge trimmer? Depending on the yeah, size yeah. of the church, you get that a lot. Dude, right. And the thing about communion or the table or whatever the app is called at your church, you get like 400 emails a day from it. And you always want to unsubscribe, but I'm afraid to for fear of looking like a jerk. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to look like the guy who's cold and uncaring, even though I'm deleting like 95% of those emails. But anyway, one of the communion things that came through recently was something about... Is that actually the name of your churches? That's the name of ours. Okay. Yeah, it's called communion. That's that's spectacular. I love it. It, Oh, dude, it's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the one of these communion things was somebody sharing an article. It was like from the Atlantic or somewhere about how smartphones are ruining kids. And it was one of these articles that you're seeing a lot of lately that's sort of uh, leaning on science a little bit and leaning on like brain research and basically saying that, you know, smartphones are turning your kids heads into mush and they're the devil and you know, they should, they should be done away with and we should all be really afraid of it. And, um, I happen to agree a hundred percent with that. Um, and in fact, I wouldn't even limit it to kids. I think smartphones are ruining adults as well. Um, Mm -hmm. so to say that it's only a kid thing would be to tell only half of the story. But I think, I think what I want to talk about vis-a-vis this topic is the kind of alarmist, language and the kind of and you see this in reform circles the sort of glee that we that we get out of rubbing our hands together when we found something else that's going to be the downfall of society are, are, do you get what i'm saying vis-a-vis that yeah, dynamic absolutely well and and i think there's also a with that comes a, a sense of like it, it stems from a sense of complete there's a complete lack of perspective on history so everything yeah. that's a crisis now is the worst crisis ever so smartphones yeah. are ruining a generation. Well, like television ruined a generation. And, That's true. You know, like rock and roll ruined a generation. And I don't, I don't know. The com- the combustion engine probably ruined a generation at some point. Dude, the printing and, press ruined a generation. Yeah, you know? exactly. So it's that 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 alarmist thing. I just look at it and I'm like. Well, why don't we give it a couple hundred years and find out exactly how ruined the generation is? Like, yeah, there's some research that shows these changes, but humans are remarkably resilient. And Mm. also anything that is ruining one child is giving an advantage to another child. Yeah, that's so true, man. If my kids don't have smartphones, they're about to own those kids who are being ruined. That's true. Dude, that's so true. And I do think of it that way. And I see the opportunities and I even see the opportunities as a writer. Like, I feel like for you and me being still relatively young in the writing game, but looking at what's coming up behind us, like, I'm not nervous. You know what I mean? Um, Nobody's stealing my spot on this, like this tiny little spot that I've carved out. I'm not getting knocked off the heap. Dude, right, man. And and part of my job here at, at Union, at the university where I teach, is to try to to get the kids to put the phones down long enough and read enough great stuff so that they become the kind of writers who do grab the mantle, you know, so that they're able to go out and, and compete for those opportunities. So I, I guess my question to you is how, like how much stock do you put into this particular thing? Like, do you think smartphones are like ruining young people or old people or any people, or do you feel like this is just another kind of, you know, trend that we have to roll with and find the the upside with? I, I think it's, I think it's probably, um, why. Well, 
I think it's probably worse than some of the things I listed previously because it's ubiquitous. Uh-huh. You know, like television yeah. is not ubiquitous. It's, right. you know, when it ruined people or when rock and roll did, like you still, all you had to do was turn it off and yeah. you couldn't take it with you. And it wasn't something that was pulling you away from a conversation yeah. quite the same way. I think <clears throat> I do see a distinct difference in, I think, in something like the the social interactions of people yeah. between the ages of like 12 and 30, um, yeah. probably older than 32. But, uh, but in terms of their ability to make eye contact and carry on a conversation and – and also just sort of the the withdrawal symptoms that happen when they're not looking at their phone. And I feel the same thing. Like if I leave my phone at home when I run to the grocery store, I feel like I'm walking around with no pants on. Like it's Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it and what am I what do I need my phone for there unless I had my grocery list on it? Like it's just Dude, um, right. And you're like you, you get all alarmist and you're like, Oh, what happens if I have a flat tire? Well, you do what it, real men do and like change your tire or walk yeah. to a gas station and make a call. Like you're not going to die, you know? And if somebody's wondering where you were, you get home and you're like, sorry, I left my phone at home. Um, right. And it's, or your car probably has a phone built in. If you have one made in the last three years, which I know <laughs> you don't cause you're like a 1994 caddy or something like that. Exactly. But, man. Uh, the land yacht. Awesome. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think, but that's, I, I, you know, so I got, I got my daughter a phone. Uh, a couple months ago, just because she's going into middle school, there's a lot of back and forth. And but I didn't get her a smartphone. I got her yeah. like just a like a one of those keyboard kinds of what do they call them like QWERTY phone, so she can text and call, and that's about it. Yeah. Um, and and the first couple weeks, it was like a process of educating her on uh, you don't need to freak out if you left your phone because for the first eleven and a half years of your life, you didn't have one of these, and it never bothered you. You know, so nothing fundamentally changed in the last 48 hours when you got a phone. So if you left it at home, you're exactly like you were before. You're okay. And, and so, but, but it's still sort of this semi crisis feeling for her. And I, and that's where I I see this as a little different is like, it has become woven into life to such a way that it's, it's different than the other things. At the same time, I think my previous point is still true that like society has overcome all sorts of things. And yeah. so are, are these, is it, is the generation of 13 year olds going to be unemployable when they're 25 because of smartphones? That's right. really hard for me to imagine. Yeah, I know it, man. I know it. Well, let me give you a, a, a real life scenario. And, and this is one that, um, so my sports editor from last year, one of my best student writers, kid named Caleb Lay, uh, he's now a sports writer for a paper in Hammond, Louisiana, and he wrote a column about um, small college sports. And I thought it was super fascinating and insightful. And he basically linked the fact that you go to any small college in any small college basketball game and there's like four students there and like 11 old people and that's it. Like nobody comes to the games anymore. And he linked it to you know, smartphones, Netflix, Snapchat, et cetera. Basically, students aren't leaving their dorms anymore. Like they're they're staying in, they're staying in their apartments, they're watching Netflix, they're doing, you know, stuff on social media on their phones, and there's no impetus, you know, to leave the dorm, to walk, you know, 20 steps to the gym and do this interactive thing with actual people. And uh, I thought it was a great point, man. And it's not just a problem at our university. I mean, it's everywhere, you know. Um, so you've basically got these basketball programs that are, that are really unsuccessful small businesses, you know, um, that are playing in front of a a bunch of a front of, uh, in front of a bunch of empty seats, even though it's really, really good basketball. And, uh, I just thought that was an interesting, like 
on the ground example of of this whole phenomenon. Well, yeah, and the thing about that is that like so smartphones are access. Uh-huh. But but the internet and and uh mobile or uh, web-based entertainment is probably more the problem if we want to yeah. label it that way because a smartphone is just a means to take that with you. So are smartphones the problem? I don't know. They're just – they're the key that unlocks the door I guess because even when I was in college, I went, to, I went to college from 2001 to 2005 at Wheaton. Yeah. And Wheaton – so Division Three, NCAA Division Three school, good sports teams – and historically had a really active student body at, uh, you know, supporting their teams. When mm-hmm. I was there, you would get people who had graduated four and five and six years earlier who would come to games and be like, it's just not exact. It's just not the same as it was when they were there. So in the mid nineties. Um, right. And we were on the front end of sort of like uh, web based entertainment and being able to share things on the college network, mostly viruses, but also videos and music <laughs> and games and stuff like that. Yep. And, and so was was that part of the problem? Was this was this web based enter, entertainment the issue? And we didn't have smartphones. Like we barely had like the Nokia block phones. Right. Um, so it's just it's just access. And yeah. and I look at it and I go, is that a bad thing? It it certainly can be, but right. there's got to be an upside to it. It can't be pure evil, and it can't right. be pure like sickness. It's not like we're spreading STDs. Through, right. through smartphones or something. And yeah. uh, it the alarmist thing, I always just want to look at it and go, take a step back and, and let history happen. Because if this is the downfall of society, then I will be proven very wrong. Um, but my guess is it's not. I think, yeah. I think the downfall of society is, has more to do with um, our moral choices and maybe some of our, our political choices than uh, – than our than our mobile technology issues. Yeah, that's a good word, man. And I think, you know, I, I think there is a fine line there where as a parent and even as just a person, you want to you want to provide the kind of boundaries for yourself that allow you to make good choices. And, you know, if that's getting rid of a smartphone, then I think that's a great choice. You know, for me, I wish I wish I'd never gotten a smartphone. Um because I look at it too often. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's just one of those things that I got used to like doing business that way and staying connected with people that way. And and when you're freelancing, like you have to be reachable. And mm-hmm. as much as I hate for people to be able to reach me, like it's a, it's a necessary evil in, you know, in the business. So, um, but yeah, a, a lot of times, man, there are a lot of days where I wish I could like, you know, go in the way back machine and never get a smartphone. But, and, um, and the rules of the, the rules of the game of accessibility have changed too. You know, it used to be that you would call and you'd leave a message for somebody often with like their little brother. And you're just like, it's throwing a note in a bottle in the ocean and hoping it lands somewhere. That's sort (laughs) of like, that's the way. And now it's like, if you text somebody and they don't text back in 30 minutes. Oh yeah. It means they hate you. Yeah. Oh yeah. Or or, or are they dead? They're, they're either a jerk. They're your enemy or they're, or they're like, their life is in danger. And that's, you know, I had a friend the other day who was like, why don't you respond to my text? And I'm like, because my phone is not permission for you to tell me when to respond to you. And, he, and I only said this to him because he was a good friend. But I was like, right. why Why am I under obligation to respond immediately if I don't feel like it? Right. But, but those are the rules of the game because of accessibility. And I think I think that's changed us. I think you're, what you said about boundaries is a really significant thing, too, because I think 
as an adult, a phone is a huge temptation to just sort of rule us, you know, to pull yeah. it out and when we're with other people and, right. and all of those issues. As a kid, kids don't have any self-control anyway. Right. Like, right. If, if you give a kid a whole chocolate cake, like they're going to eat until they, they puke. Whereas yeah. you or I might be like, we might have one too many pieces, but we're mm-hmm. not going to eat until we puke because we sort of know our limits. Yeah. And that's, I, so if, if there's an issue, I think that's a big piece of it is, is putting a, a dangerous thing, a mature thing in the hands of an immature person. Well, and you see a lot of people doing that. And I think that's, yes. as a parent, like that's the troubling part because, you know, our kids come home from school and they see all the other 11 and 12 year olds rocking smartphones and they, they, they wonder why we're not giving into that, you know, and it's because. And your, and your reasoning makes the, no difference. Yeah, we have the luxury of like age and wisdom and, and you know, being able to say to them because you can't handle it. And that's not an indictment yeah. of you. That's just the facts. You know, um, nobody at that age can handle it. And, and, um, and you don't have the right to say because other parents are idiots. Right. You Even know, though like, that's I think, true. I think parents who give 10 year old smartphones have made a really dumb choice. But I agree. Man. When my 10 year old daughter said, why can't I get a smartphone? My friends, I when I can't be like, yeah, well, your friend's parents are, are, are morons. That's yeah. <laughs> you can't do it. Just like with anything else. Why do they get to watch that movie? Why do they, they get to stay up till 11 o'clock? I just want to be like, because they're making bad choices. But yeah. I have to I have to navigate that more politically. Exactly. Pipe last last kind of sub question on this topic and then we'll move on. Do you see. And this is this is something that I've long thought of as it pertains to the Internet in general and entertainment and social media. Like, do you think there's any bursting of this bubble or do you think that as a culture, we're just going to continue to ratchet up our involvement in these things? And and maybe a better way to say that is, do you ever do you ever see people getting tired of just gazing at themselves? Um, like, do, no. do you think it's going to diminish <laughs> at some point? I I don't think so, because. <clears throat> I think I think people may mature out of it, but uh-huh. I think there's going to be <clears throat> people's first exposure to that is a drug. You know, yeah. so if if 12-year-olds continue to get the opportunity to take selfies, share about themselves and and essentially enter the narcissism of social media, yeah, uh, without the maturity of handling it, they're going to continue to do that. No, maybe they will grow out of it at 21 or 25 or 35 where they start to go, there's a better way to do this or I need to take a break from this or I need to put my phone down. Um, yeah. or, so you and I have have the uh, the experience of like we lived without social media for most of our lives. Like I didn't get on – I mean it was like what, 2008, 2009 maybe when I got on any social media. That wasn't that long ago and right. I was an adult. Which yeah. and there's still the temptation, but yep. so I I don't think people are ever gonna, I don't think that narcissism is gonna go away. I mm. hope that people begin to grow out of it as they age, but I think there's always gonna be an age range where people potentially ruin their lives on social media because they're 17 and too stupid to know that that picture will lose you a job someday. That picture mm. will like that'll ruin a relationship, um, and live and learn, I guess. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't see the bubble bursting. I think I think what we will see is an ongoing rise and I mean you already see it where people are people especially in the more faith communities are talking about the necessity of solitude and the necessity of peace and then and mm-hmm. their love for paper books and things yeah. like that. So like sort of the rise of 
the rise of a love of nature. It's people love woodwork. People love these these very the things that were just sort of part of life a hundred years ago. Yeah. are now becoming like people's pursuits. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of that's in response to the the digital ubiquity. Yeah, I think so, man. And the, the interesting dynamic that I see as a college professor is I get students who are smart and self-aware enough to articulate the fact that they hate it and it's not satisfying, but no one's stopping. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe stopping comes a decade later when they're 30. Um as opposed to in college when they're 19 or 20. But, but it uh, doesn't because I'm, or, I'm, I'm 35 and I, every day, every day at least once I find myself scrolling through Twitter going, this is like eating too much cotton candy. It's, it's saccharine sweet and my stomach yeah. hurts. And I will close Twitter and open Facebook. And mm-hmm. eight minutes later, I'll feel the same way on Facebook and close it and open Instagram. And then I'll close that and I'll go back to Twitter. And somewhere <laughs> in that in that loop of death, I go, what am I doing? And right. I have to I, – I physically have to put my phone face down and go read a book or go outside or play with my puppy or, you know, God help me, talk to a human being. And, <laughs> and uh, so, no, they, it, it doesn't stop. We just – Hopefully yeah. the self-awareness kicks in so we don't we don't get stuck in that loop. Exactly. Man, I was thinking the other day about this and I was thinking like, how would I feel if I had invented – if I was Mark Zuckerberg? You know what I mean? Um, and, and sure, I'm, I, I'm sure the hundreds of millions of dollars – he's a sociopath, like, so I don't think he feels anything. Dude, right, man. And that's the question. <laughs> it's like if you had created this thing that's not really a product – you know, it's not beautiful. It's not praiseworthy. It's not, you know, even aesthetically pleasing, you know, so it's not a product. It's not like a good that, that enhances people's lives. And you've created this thing that just creates sort of low key dissatisfaction in everyone who uses it. Like I would feel horrible. You know what I mean? I would want to go into my office and pull the plug and make it go away forever. And I wonder if he ever has that impulse. Um, I suspect that his paycheck and his deep love for experimenting on humanity has, mm-hmm. uh, means no. Yeah. I mean, I, I think <clears throat> I wouldn't be surprised if when he's 60 or 70, he looks back and he's like, I, I maybe should have done things differently, but, yeah. uh, but yeah, he just, he's, I mean, Facebook is, Facebook is a social media platform to us, to the people who work at Facebook. It is an experiment in – I mean it's it's a lab. They, yeah. are, they are experimenting yeah. on all of us and they're yeah. geniuses at it. Um, yeah. And so I – you know, and if and if that's what he wants to do, I mean it's, it's the uh, – I don't remember what, what movie it's from. But – oh, I, th- I think it was from Jurassic Park. You know, your scientists were so busy worrying about if they could do something, they never stopped to think about if they should. Right. And that's, that's a little bit what – the formation of social media is like. No, man, totally agree. Totally, totally agree. Well, Pipe, let's uh, let's land the plane here with a little bit of a lighter hearted topic. This one came from Twitter and the people want to know who, what actors we think are overrated and what actors we think are underrated. And you and I are both, uh, we're both fans of films. We're both fans of pop culture. Um, What do you, what do you have for me in this area? Well, let me start with underrated because uh, I would rather than ripping on people to start. I've got plenty of actors yeah. who I could rip on. That's the easy part. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. 
I'm going to throw out – well, let me start with this. I think most leading actresses are underrated. Interesting. And like, yes, that's I was looking – I was trying to think and I was like, OK, so who are some underrated actresses? And I was like, well, even the best ones are underrated. You know, yeah. the, the most successful actresses in, in film today are underrated because – The industry just churns through actresses, you know? Yeah, I mean um, it's, it's really – I think it's changing a little bit because you start to see some more actresses who are successful into their 40s, 50s, 60s instead of just being successful while they're young and beautiful. Um, But even then, like – so take somebody like Viola Davis who's a brilliant actress. But if she was the lead in a film, like she was supposed to carry a film, my guess is A, no studio would pick it up and B – it, w- it would have to be an independent film and it pr- wouldn't make any money. Whereas right. like somebody like one of my favorite overrated actors, I say favorite, one of the most overrated, Ryan Gosling. I, I don't think he can act. Ryan Gosling uh-huh. is terrible. But you put his face on a movie and all of a sudden you're like, oh, they're just going to make money. Right. And so it's I, that's why I say I think most most female actresses are underrated because whether they're decent or excellent – they're still they they just don't they don't get the same the same pub or the same credit that their male counterparts do. Right. I was I was talking with somebody in the industry one time and they were explaining the whole the whole dynamic about how at any given time there's like five to ten male actors who can who are bankable. You know what I mean? Yeah. So if you attach them to your movie, even if the movie stinks, even if the script is bad, like the movie's gonna do business. So, you know, your Brad Pitt, your George Clooney's uh, your Tom Ryan Cruise. Gosling's guys like that, Tom Hanks, whatever, yeah. you know, we could make a, a list of five or 10 of these guys. But um, he said that even even at their peak, um, there was no female actor that could carry a movie like that from a business standpoint. Even Julia Roberts at, at the at the top of her game, um, you know, there was nobody that they could point to in the industry to say if she's attached, it carries the picture. And I thought that was fascinating. I, w- I was really surprised. Yeah, I feel like I feel like female actresses get critical acclaim, but not commercial acclaim. And yeah. but in movies, commercial acclaim matters because it's a business. You know, right. it's it's like it, if you're an author who gets positive reviews and don't sell any copies, well, I think that's kind of nice. But yeah. uh, and I feel like that's that's most leading female actresses. So like right. Charlize Theron came out with Atomic Blonde, which I haven't seen yet. Looks really fun, but it's uh, it looks sort of like John Wick. With right. a, a female star, but like Keanu Reeves is not a good actor, and John Wick was <laughs> a, a John Wick was a really fun movie, but it was a mm-hmm. terrible movie. It was like terrible yeah. on purpose, and yep. but a woman can't get away with making a terrible on purpose action flick and have the same sort of commercial success. Like that has that's become almost like a cult classic. John Wick has right. so right, and she's a way better performer than Keanu Reeves is. So Dude, it's, it's funny. A, Maybe it's because we're not comfortable with like women doing irony. You know what I mean? So, so Keanu or, Reeves. Or be- because in Hollywood, women have always just been like, they've been sex symbols or, or virtuous. Like yeah. there is, there is no other option. They're either, they're either the hot one or they're, yeah. you know, they're Mary Poppins. Yeah. No, you're right, man. You're absolutely right. So, Pipe, give me an overrated actor. Well, I mentioned Ryan Gosling. He's Oh, Gosling. Yeah. Yeah, Gosling's timeless, and I think Russell Crowe is horrendously overrated. Dude, I totally agree on Russell Crowe. Couldn't agree more. And, in fact, this one's going to get me some flack, man. Uh, but I watched 
So we came back from Israel and I was all like, you know, kind of into all that. And, and I wanted to watch something that, you know, that sort of had to do with, with that era or whatever. So I was like, oh, we'll watch Gladiator. Um, so we watched Russell, Cr- Russell Crowe's movie Gladiator, which totally didn't hold up. Um, no, it doesn't. Dude, what a piece of trash of a movie. And uh, I know all the like all the all the sort of broed up macho guys are going to hate me for that. But um, it's really bad. It's really overdirected. It's it's overwrought. You know, it takes itself way too seriously. There are way too many effects. He takes himself too seriously. Have you ever seen him in a movie where you're like, he seems like he'd be fun to be around? Never. Not one time. No. Yeah. Not <laughs> ever. Not like, ever. Even. Even Christian Bale, who is known for being a somewhat surly person, like you watch him as an actor and you're like, his character looks fun. Like Russell Crowe's characters look like they have bad breath and are no fun to be around. You're absolutely right, man. Absolutely right. So I don't know if the people I'm about to name even count anymore as underrated actors, but uh, I, I know this first one doesn't. Casey Affleck, man. I have loved Casey Affleck in literally everything he's ever done. Yes. I still think he's underrated because he's like Manchester by the sea got a ton of acclaim, but like he still hasn't, he still hasn't been an A-lister and a blockbuster. Dude. Right. So people, you know, people in the general public still regard him as like Ben Affleck's little brother, even though he's probably a way better actor and does way better movies. And he's he's definitely better than his brother. Yeah. He's one of those guys that every role he's in, you like him in it. You know what I mean? Even if it's a, even if it's a tiny little part, you're like, Oh, that dude was cool. You know, Casey Affleck's character was cool. And um, so he's on the list. Dude, the other one, this is a girl who was in, uh, oh, she was in that, dude, what was that sitcom? I'm blanking. The one with Ron Swanson, um, Parks and Rec. Parks and Rec, yeah. Uh, it's Aubrey Plaza. So Aubrey yeah. Plaza was in Parks and Rec. She kind of played is she this. The, is she the super straight-faced one? Yeah, she was the super straight-faced, yeah. kind of glum, you know, uh, the girl that dated, uh, oh my gosh, I'm terrible Chris at Pratt. names today. Chris Pratt. Yeah, she dated Pratt. She was in an independent film called Safety Not Guaranteed, and it was phenomenal. Um, it was a little, like, tiny budget movie. They, they shot the whole thing for, like, 250 k uh, but it was a great, great little story. Uh, she carried it. She was phenomenal. Um, she can really, really act, man. So I think, uh, I think we're going to see her in more things, and, uh, and I look forward to that. Um, the other one, and this is another guy that you probably can't call underrated anymore, but uh, he's in a ton of movies that I like, Bob Balaban. Do you know who Bob Balaban is? I don't. I'm about to look him up, though. How do you dude, spell Dude, he's it? like the little funny older dude in every movie that you like. Um, always really clever. He's in a lot of the Wes Anderson movies. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. <clears throat> he was in Gosford Park, which I think he... I don't, I don't think he directed Gosford Park, but he produced it. He may have directed Gosford Park, but um, really, really clever, man. Does great little movies. And um, just a really talented dude. So my my overrated actor, and I'll be curious to see if you agree with me on this one, is uh, is Tom Hardy. Now, let me preface this by saying that I like a lot of Tom Hardy's movies, but I think Tom Hardy as an actor is a little bit overrated. Uh, There was a great piece on The Ringer, if you ever read The Ringer, by Shea Serrano about how Tom Hardy has made a career (laughs) out of brooding. Did you read that? No, but you said Shea Serrano, and I I enjoy almost everything he writes because if it's if it's not spot on, it's absurd and hilarious. Dude, right? So you got to look up Shea Serrano brooding Tom Hardy because it's this whole essay about how this guy has made a career out of being really jacked and having really huge traps and just mm-hmm. like 
staring into a fire. You know what I mean? And just like brooding, staring off into space. And if you think about it, every Tom Hardy movie, that's kind of what he makes a living doing. And, um, did you, you know, not one where he played, are, did you see the one where he played twins? Um, dude, I did. And it was so and, violent and, and so vile that even though I was really into the story, I had to bail on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then, and then he's in a, he's in a TV show. I guess it's a Netflix show called Peaky Blinders and he plays mm-hmm. a, uh, a a British Jewish mob boss in like the 1920s, and he's he's sort of a yeah. bit character, but it's it's much more sort of an eccentric part than it is a brooding part, and yeah. it's 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 a fun character. Like he adds a lot of life to the show. Dude, I feel like that 1920s mob situation is like his wheelhouse. You know what I mean? Because oh, yeah. he look, he looks great in like the shaved sides, like Hitler Youth kind of haircut. Um, you know, he looks great in the old like yeah. 1920s suits. What was in fact? What was he the does kind a lot of like of military deep, stuff too? Yeah, what was the grim deep south like 1920s moonshine movie that he did? Oh yeah, yeah, with uh Shia LaBeouf was in it. They were brothers. Yeah. Also um, really also really super called, violent. Was it called Lawless? It was Lawless. Yeah. You that know what? He's movie. a good actor. I take that back. Cuz everything that we're talking about right now, he's actually incredible in. Well, he yeah, he well, he's he's a good actor if he's cast appropriately. So Yeah. He just he can't do. Although my guess is he could probably do comedy too, but I don't know. So underrated actor for me, Michael K. Williams. Okay, you, you talk about that. with him. So yeah. he's the one. He's the guy who played Omar in The Wire. And okay. That's the first time I ran across him and loved that character. That character was. I mean, that show was full of great characters, but Omar yeah. was one of the best. But I've seen him in a handful of other things. He's always he's always a he's always a second or third tier character. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's, he's more of a character actor than a leading man, but I don't see why he couldn't be like, he, right. he is, he should be Casey Affleck. Like he's, he's got charisma. He's mm. got, he can, he can do a whole range of things where he's like a, he's a warm person or like a, a sinister character. Uh, he mm-hmm. plays a guy named Chalky White in the show, um, Boardwalk Empire. So sort yep. of a, he's a, he's a black mob boss during prohibition era, Atlantic city. Yep. Um, Dude, he and, crushes a, that role. It's perfect. Yes, it's he's so yeah. good because on the one hand he's this he's this loving father, family man. On the other hand, he's like this brutal mob boss, um, yep. while also dealing with like the racial dynamics of the time. And he's right. I just think he's I've I've never seen him and not been like he's spectacular. He's so yeah. good, dude. I just so why think aren't he there doesn't more get like, enough play? Why aren't there more leading man roles for a guy like that? You know what I mean? I I think I. Because Hollywood is just like the publishing industry. It's the same reason that authors who can't write get six-figure advances and write bestsellers because, like, that's what – the public just sort of eats up what they're served. That's and it's And it's a risk to put somebody like Casey Affleck or Michael K. Williams or most female performers as a leading role because that's not what the public eats up. They eat up Chris Pratt as Star-Lord, which is really fun but also yeah. really – like that's a predictable thing. Yeah, it's why we're gonna have to sit through another trash Russell Crowe movie in a couple of years. You know, I, I have three actors who are all about the same age. They're uh-huh. all white, and they're all like critically acclaimed leading men. And I can't decide if they're overrated. Dude, so I'm gonna throw on these. Me, all right, first one is Kevin Spacey. Okay. Is he, is he is he overrated? Is he really good? Is he both really good and overrated? But he's just sort of like his body of work is so big. There's just some duds in there. Like what is Dude, he? that's that's so interesting. I think 
I think he might be a little overrated because I feel like he's getting to that point in his career and feel free to push back on this where he's he's playing everything so deadpan that like he's almost just like a a, a blank like beige guy anymore. Yeah. You know what I mean? When he, and, when he, he, I feel like he's also reached the place where he's it's like, oh, there's Kevin Spacey doing Kevin Spacey. So the, the, the yeah. role they wanted him to play was Kevin Spacey. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. I feel like I know another name that's going to be on this list, but I want you to lay another one on me. Paul Giamatti is the next one. Okay. Ah, interesting. See, I don't know if we can call Paul Giamatti overrated. Um, Neither because he hasn't been like, there's not a lot of Paul Giamatti blockbusters. Dude, right. There's not a lot of blockbusters. And Giamatti's a guy that I've always got a soft spot on my heart for a guy that hasn't made it on conventional good looks. You know what I mean? Russell Crowe made it because he was jacked and he was handsome and he was Australian and yeah, he was rugged and he's all, Tom all Hardy, stuff. but not as good. Dude, right. He's like a less good. He's like a poor man's Tom Hardy. You know what I mean? Whereas Giamatti really had to make it as an actor. Like he really, really had to act. He had to be savvy yeah. in terms of the roles that he took. He took some great ones. Um, you know, I think Giamatti deserves to be there. I really, really do. Okay, and and of of the the three names, I haven't given you the third. He was the one who I was most inclined to say not overrated. Yeah, but he's also a guy who's so distinctive in his style that yeah. he kind of I kind of sometimes feel like he's playing himself. Yeah. But I also feel yeah. like he chooses roles where he can do the things he's really good at too. So it's, For sure. it's kind of a okay. The last one, and you're this is one you probably could have pulled out of the hat is Tom Hanks. Yeah, Tom Hanks, man, I. It's so funny with Tom Hanks because there's a certain there's a certain era and a certain wheelhouse in which I love Tom Hanks, and it's all like pre Philadelphia stuff. You know what I mean? Like I loved him, and you've got Mail, Sleepless in Seattle, like Big, uh, The Money Pit, all the goofy like '80s comedies where he was like, you know, kind of the fun loving Tom Hanks guy. Uh, I loved him and all that, but I, I've been kind of meh on him. For the last 15 years or so. You know what I mean? What was the one that he did where he was a, uh, he was like a mob hitman. Jude Law was trying to kill him. Um, Dude, yeah. It was called The Road to Perdition and it was mad. You know, the the best thing about it was, you know, the suits and the old cars and the the kind of look and feel of the whole thing. But But he looks funny in a mustache. He looked funny in a mustache and he was not quite believable in that context. You know what I mean? And that's and that's the thing is because I, I feel like with somebody like him, he his personality, like people know so much of him as as Tom Hanks that when yeah. he has to play the sort of darker, brooding, conflicted character, it just doesn't work. Dude, you just didn't buy like, it. You never, ever yeah. bought it. Dude, I'm going to drop one on you right now that's kind of in the kind of in the same genre as those th- those three gentlemen that you just mentioned, but a little bit bigger. And um I'm putting him on the maybe overrated list because of the sheer volume of trash movies that this guy's <laughs> done, even though I think he's a great actor. The actor is Bob De Niro, man. De Niro is a is a legend. He's incredible, but he's done some trash pipe. Robert De Niro is Brett Favre on the Jets. Okay, yeah, f- perfect. That That's so because- well said. Yeah. Because in you know when when he was in like The Godfather two when he was in uh, was a Taxi Driver, Dude, Taxi he, Driver, Raging Bull, incredible. Yeah, just you know? mean, it, well, yeah. Again, his his body of work in the first half of his career is bonkers, bonkers. 
like all time great. And his body of work, like so what was what was the one um what was the one he did where he was he was the it, man, it always comes back to he's a mafia boss who has to go to like emotional therapy with Billy Crystal. Um Oh dude, yeah. Analyze that or this Analyze or, this. Yeah. So analyze yeah. this was the first one. And that was entertaining and you're like, Oh, that's cute. He's sort of branching out. And yeah. then it just devolved into like analyze that, analyze those, analyze these. And then Dude, it was right. like, and then, then he ended up in Dirty Grandpa with Dude, like, Dirty Zac Grandpa. Are you kidding me with was. that? Like, I just, I, I, I wanted to cry when that came out because I'm like, no, that's. Dude, that's I want to see him. That's Vito Corleone. Like, what's he doing? <laughs> I don't want to see him in Dirty Grandpa. That's like seeing my own grandpa in Dirty Grandpa. Right. You know what I mean? It just hurts yeah. your soul, Pipe. So here's the thing, man. I've, I've thought about this a lot about why he's doing those movies. It's like, does he owe people money? You know what I'm saying? Like, is, is he, is he literally strapped for cash such that he has to do dirty grandpa? Because if so, we need to start a Kickstarter for Bob De Niro to just say, you know what? We're going to take care of you. Like Hollywood out of respect should just pay him not to do those movies. Like we will pay you the same amount if at, for, if you were in it to save your dignity and not be in it. Dude, right. And it's kind of like Brett Favre when he was on the Jets. It's like, it's like, bro, just retire, you know? Like, and then he went to the Viking and sold his soul to the devil and that. But, but like the Jets was like him at his lowest. Dude, you know what, he though, was, man? There's one far Viking moment, and I feel like we've talked about it either off the air or on the air. It was the, it was the bounty game against the Saints uh-huh. where they were just killing him. I mean, they were, they were sending like the kitchen sink at that dude. And hitting him like thirty seconds after the play was over. Yeah, knees, shins, just dude, knees, were, shins, dirty. Yeah, the whole thing, man. And that that dude, he he was tough. He showed some moxie in that game. Is all I'm saying. Oh, I you know I I always respected Favre. I always hated Favre. Those are I not mutually that, exclusive things. Oh, they're not mutually exclusive. Absolutely not. But I showed that game to my kid. I'm like, this is what a tough athlete looks like, man. This is what it looks like to take some to take some beating and, and keep coming back. Yeah. Um, so, man, maybe Bob De Niro's got one. Maybe he's got a Saints bounty game I, in him I left. Hope, I hope he has some Clint Eastwood in him. You know, where he has like the yeah. early career where it's like, you know, he's doing the unforgiven. He's doing the good, the bad and the ugly. He's doing, yeah. you know, all of those. And then he comes back and is in, you know, uh, when he and he comes back as a director and then he's in the uh, uh, what's the one with the car? Um Oh yeah, yeah, Gran Torino, yeah. Gran Torino, and you know, and and those kind of ones where you're like, he, he's limited, but he still yeah. has it. He still has. He's it. limited, but what he does, he does really well. You know what I mean? And I, hope I think De Niro, De Niro has, I hope De Niro can finish that way, dude. I hope he's got one more in him. You know, I hope he's got one more kind of legendary, uh, raging bull esque kind of thing in him yeah. uh, before it's all said and done. But. Uh, but we shall see, man. It's been, uh, it's interesting, man. You could talk about this stuff all day, you know, because there's so many. I love talking about this stuff. Yeah. And then then if we just started throwing out names, we could have conversations about dozens of, of these overrated, underrated. Absolutely. Absolutely. But pipe, we've been at this for almost an hour, man. We've been doing an hour's worth of radio and we need to save something. We need to save a little (laughs) something for our audience. And, uh, we need to covenant with one another right now that if in a podcasting sense, if we ever get to that, like, what is it, Dirty Grandpa? Naughty Grandpa? What was it? Dirty, yeah, I think it's Dirty Grandpa. If we ever get into that Dirty Grandpa space in our careers where we're just doing this for the money, we need to get out, you know? Yep. 
And maybe yeah, that's where Big R. Just, our listeners should just pay us to not do the podcast. Exactly, dude. Maybe Big R has been a little bit uh, jaded by the money and the decadence and the fame that we're getting from this podcast, and he feels like he's at a dirty grandpa place in his career. You know, Oof. we'll have to have we'll have to have a little uh, little heart to heart with him off the air and see if tough conversations pipe. Like. Yeah. Tough conversations. What, I, mean, I mean, that's what good friends do. We put down our smartphones and uh, right. and we go have face to face conversations. We go face to face and we say, are you in a dirty grandpa place in your career with podcasting? Because if you are, then get out. Right? Save yourself. That's right. Yeah, save you got you to extricate yourself. You got to save your reputation. You got to recoup the dignity you still have. And I mean, and, and Ronnie had lots of dignity. We wouldn't want him to lose that. He had a ton of dignity and he has dignity. And uh, let me let me be the first to say out loud, I hope we have him back next week. You know? Um, I, I really, I really, really hope that whatever he's dealing with, whatever he's going through, that it doesn't reach a Trogsian level of, of discontentment with, uh, with the podcasting business, because I don't want to lose another co-host pipe. Yeah, that would be, that would be really tragic, but yeah. I, I think, I think we're still a ways away from that. We just, we are, we just need to intervene and find out. Maybe I'm trying to guard my heart a little bit with that though. You know what I mean? Like emotionally, I'm I'm even on a subconscious level trying to trying to put up the walls right now and just trying to prepare myself for it. Um, I think that's for the best. That's not that's not a bad move. Vulnerability is good, but it can also it's very risky. Guard the heart. Guard the heart. Pipe. That's a good word to end on. And until next time, Rachel the Hell to Evans. The Happy Rant is brought to you by Resonate Recordings. If you go to ResonateRecordings.com, you can see the full range of services they offer. So if you're considering starting a podcast, they are the ones we recommend going with. Again, go to ResonateRecordings.com to see their prices, to connect with them and ask any questions, and to see what they can do to help you launch, edit, master, and improve your podcast. Again, go to ResonateRecordings.com to see what they can do to help you launch and improve your podcast. In a world where relationships are easily broken and often discarded, the Rebuilding Us Marriage Podcast is your lighthouse, guiding the way to hope, restoration, and transformation in Christ. I'm your host and marriage coach, Dana Shea. Join me as we discuss the necessary tools for rebuilding marriages from adversity, betrayal, and disconnection. It's time to reignite love as we rebuild marriages from the ground up. Listen to the Rebuilding Us Marriage podcast on lifeaudio.com or wherever you get your podcasts.